All right, how's everybody doing? Great to see you. I was on vacation last week at Disney World, me and every other person who lives in America. We were all there because everything was, the lines were insane. Uh, but I, I don't know if you guys do this. Uh, most people do. You have like a vacation ritual. Like there, maybe there's um, stuff that you don't eat normally, but when you're on vacation, it's like all bets are off. You know, that kind of thing. I have that. Um, my, my vacation ritual is that I have Oreos for breakfast. That's my vacation ritual. There was a person in the, thank you, whoever that was. There was a person in the first service and they're like, me too. We're starting a club, if anybody wants to join. Um, but uh, that's my, now I'll show you, this is a picture of my daughter, Olivia, who's 22 months, here she is. And uh, that's her with a double stuffed Oreo. That's, or you can also tell by the smile that uh, that's, what you, that's what happens when kids are so happy because they get Oreos for breakfast. Double stuff, of course, because I have a theory that um, they should, Oreo needs to do away with the original Oreo. The double stuff needs to become the regular. The new mega stuff, I've been telling them about that for years, by the way. The mega stuff needs to become the double stuff. And then I've been, I've, I have, I've been writing them about this thing that I call you stuff, which is where they give you a sleeve of the crackers and then a tub of the cream, and you just put as much as you want in the middle, and that's how you stuff. So it's dub, the regular double stuff, mega stuff becomes double stuff, and then you stuff, and then we'll all be dead. So anyway. Um, but I'll tell you what, but we don't keep Oreos in our house. That's why we have all this lame stuff in my house, like fruit and vegetables, you know? Uh, and the reason we don't keep Oreos in the house is because I, 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 I don't, I can't really contain myself. And, uh, my wife always reminds me because I'm, we'll be in the store and I'll be, Hey, let's just buy what's one bag. And she's like, we can't remember that time. And I, oh yeah. Okay. And what happens is that a few years ago I was speaking at this church and uh, they gave me this really nice gift bag for a uh, gift thing for, uh, for speaking. And inside it were two bags of double stuff Oreos, which is the nicest gift anyone's ever given me. Um, and so what happened was I got home and then we, uh, we had this, uh, what Carrie used to do this thing. It's really incredible. What would happen is she would take a, this Tupperware, right? She'd get this Tupperware. She would line the bottom with pieces of just like slices of bread. Then she'd put Oreos in it. Then she'd put more bread, then more Oreos, and then top it off with bread. Close it up overnight. And then through the powers of science and magic, maybe even voodoo, who knows? Um, you open it up, right? Check it out. You would open it up the next morning, and the bread would be hard and stale, but the Oreos would be soft. It's, now, this is before the invention of cakesters. I don't have time to get into cakesters. That's another sermon. Okay, we will talk about cakesters at some other point in time, which are a wonderful thing. We just don't have time to talk about it. But anyway, but so, but what happened is that once the Oreos were soft, I mean, we would get rid of all the stale bread and then we just have soft Oreos. The problem is I would start going crazy just eating Oreos because, you know, first thing in the morning, boom, I would just go. So after I had spoken at this church and they had given me these two things of Oreos, some people came over the next day and we're hanging out and then Carrie looked and half of the Tupperware was gone. Half of the Oreos were gone. And she's like, Bob, you've got to slow down. And I'm like, listen, there's lots of people here. I'm, you know, I'm sure there's people opening up random storage little Tupperware things in our house. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I might be one of them, but, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not eating all of them. And so anyway, so, um, 
So later on in the day, I, I get, go into the kitchen, because then Carrie's kind of eyeing me. Like, because every time I go into the kitchen, what are you doing? Nothing. Just making sure the refrigerator's still there, you know? <laughs> so I, so I, I, I kind of sneak into the kitchen, and I'm just, you know, and I, I know this is like my one opportunity, so I just start grabbing some Oreos, you know, double fisting, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm going for it. And then I'm putting some Oreos in my pockets for later and whatever. And, and then, y- y- let me ask you, you ever have this feeling sometimes like you're being watched? <laughs> well, that's kind of what happened is that I had this feeling. I, was, I had a few Oreos in my mouth. So it was kind of like this with Oreos. And I turn around and my wife is standing there with this look of utter disappointment. And I can't even, I can't even make the face. It was, it was this face that said, I had so many other options, and yet I married you. It was like that. And, um, and, and, and I'm like, how did you know? And she's like, I know all of your antics. We've been married for too long. I know all of your antics, right? <clears throat> now, here's the thing. When you know someone, it's not just that you know them, but you know what they're going to say. You know how they're going to react. You know many times what they're going to do. In fact, uh, and, and you may... You may not think about this, but you probably already know it intuitively. And that is that when your knowledge of them even paints your relationship with them, right? Um, and it's, and it's, it's the weirdest thing, right? Do you have, anybody have a, a, a family member or a friend that has this ability to make any good thing be bad? Like any good, any good thing that happens to you, it turns into, they turn it into bad news, right? I, I, don't, know, I, don't, I don't understand these people. But it's incredible. Uh, but and you could go to them and say, hey, it's an awesome, I won the lottery. Oh, the taxes, and now this and that. And you're like, this is horrible. I can't believe this. I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but they have this gift of making everything bad. I don't, I don't know what it is, but they do. Right? You, know, you have a friend, you know, and I think all of us have, have some person in our life that's like totally judgmental all the time. And uh, like you don't go to them with your problems. Why? Because they're going to judge you because that's what they do, right? That's on their business card. And, uh, and so, you know, you've got another family member that it's like they don't take anything seriously. And then, you know, it's like, hey, listen, you know, I went to the doctor. It's not good. Like, yeah, you know, you ever hear the one about the doctor that walked into a bar with a duck? You know, like, no, that's not what it's not. I'm trying to tell you something serious. And you don't go to, why? They just, because you know them. Now, here's what we're going to explore in our time together. There's people that we know. We know what they're going to do. We know what they're going to say. Uh, here, here's the, the thing that I want to explore today. And that is, do we really know God? You see, I'm not saying, do you know about God? I'm not even saying, do you know facts about who God is? I'm asking the question, do you know God? You see, that's at the heart of what the Apostle Paul is going to share in Philippians chapter 3. And if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open there with me to Philippians 3. And we started this series a few weeks ago that's called The Science of Joy. And, and what we've been looking at is we've been working our way verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And Paul is going to get very personal in these verses and talk about his own journey. He's going to get very strong in some places and talk about his own experience. <clears throat> because Paul, in his former life, was a guy that thought knowing God was all about ritual. It was all about his religious resume. It was all about this competition he had with his peers, about knowing more, doing more, being more religious. And and what we're going to find is, is that he has this experience with Jesus. He comes to know Jesus, and then everything changes. And Paul says, 
He has to recalculate and recalibrate and reevaluate everything in his life and learn that knowing God is about something other than his resume, something other than his rituals, something other than all of those things. And what we're going to explore is what Paul really has learned about knowing who God is. And we're going to start in Philippians 3 and verse 1. Here's what we're going to read. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. If you pause there and give me your attention. There's three things I want to tell you that Paul's going to show us about knowing God. The first one is this, is that we know God by relationship and not through rituals. We know, and listen, let me tell you why, how important this is, because um, especially a, a, a Protestant church like ours, who, who doesn't, uh, we don't do a lot of rituals, right? There's not a lot of stand up, sit down, not a lot of, you know, uh, praying to statues and things like that. But what can happen is, oh, that's not really for us. But let me tell you what we can do. What we can do is this. We can actually uh, create our own rituals. We create our own rituals sometimes by things that we say. And there, there's this kind of phraseology that we say, well, if I just kind of talk like this, then, then that's that. that sounds very spiritual, sounds like I'm very close to God. And what we don't realize is that what we're doing is this very same thing and that we're trusting actually in the ritual than in the relationship. See, let me, let me explain to you what, what I mean by that. We were at the Magic Kingdom last week <clears throat> with my daughter Mia, who's almost seven, and my son Xander, who is four. And uh, we want to ride the Tomorrowland Grand Prix. You know what I'm talking about? The, it's like a 40-minute wait for a 30-second ride. Um, and so basically you get in the little car and it has the, the, the track is already set, but the little kids can drive and then you can still kind of slam into that. But they, uh, it kind of has this little track all the way around. So we got a fast pass for that. And so what we did was uh, we, we came back at the, at the fast pass time. And then, uh, so we're walking, we, we give them the pass, we walk through. And I realize I have a problem. I've got two kids that want to ride this, that want to drive the car. So I say to the attendant that's there, and I say, sir, I've got a little bit of a problem. I've got two kids. They both want to drive uh, the, the race car. And he says, oh, no problem. And he gives me this little vinyl, this little blue vinyl thing with Velcro. And he says, just give this to um, the other attendant when you're going to get into the, into the car. And I said, sure. So I say, hey, I'm supposed to give this to you because both my kids want to ride. Oh, yeah, no problem. They, they strap it to the back. Of, um, of the car to know that we're going to go around twice. One of the kids is going to ride once, and then we're going to switch seats, and then the other is going to ride the second time, which that sounds great. And so now I have a secondary problem, and that is which of them is going to go first. And so I say, uh, all right, guys, now one of you is going to go first, and then one of you is going to go second. And then uh, Xander says, well, I want to go first. And Mia says, well, I want to go first. And Xander says, well, no, I'm going to go first. And, and Mia says, no, 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 I'm going to go first. And I say, listen, I'm not getting involved. The two of you need to work it out. I'm not getting in this mess. But you need to decide in about a minute because this thing is coming up, and we're going to have to get in the car, so figure it out quickly. And uh, so Xander says, Mia, I'm going to go first. Mia says, Xander, I'm going to go first. They go back and forth. And then Mia stops and she puts her hand on Xander's shoulder. And she says, Xander, you should go last. Because remember, the last will be first and the first will be last. (laughs) And she says that and Xander becomes indignant. And he says, Mia, let me tell you something. 
That's not right. The first are first and the last are last and I'm going first. And, and I, and first of all, I'm hysterical with laughter as I'm listening to this. And then I, 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 I contain myself enough to say to Mia and I say, Mia, what does it mean? The last will be first. What does that mean? And uh, she says, dad, I don't know. I just hear mommy say that all the time. <laughs> I thought that. And uh, so now I've got to explain that. And now we're in the middle, we're in the middle of the magic kingdom. We're having a theological discourse on what Jesus's words were when he said that. And I'm explaining to her, like when Jesus said that, what, he, what he's saying is, is that when you serve other people and you let them go first, God's going to bless you and you're actually going to end up being further ahead than if you tried to push your way up to being first. Do you understand? Yes. Dad, can I say something? Yes, you can. But I still want to go first. This really doesn't make any sense. So anyway, um, but this is this, this is this exact same thing that can happen. We can say things that sound spiritual, but they just don't have any real meaning to us. It's just just kind of a ritual. I hear people say this all the time. Well, hey, how's this thing? How's that thing going? You know, you know, how's the job thing going? Well, you know, I'm praying about it. What does that exactly mean? Well, you know, I, I prayed once about it, and now I'm, now I'm just playing video games for the most part. Um, okay. And, uh, well, you know, I'm just seeking the Lord. What exactly does that mean? Well, you know, it just, I, I, don't, I don't know. I just heard somebody say that once, and that's what I've been saying to people. Um, and listen, it sounds spiritual. And listen, it is if we're actually doing it. If not, it's just ritual. And what Paul does is that he contrasts this. He looks at these, these people that he calls, he gives them, it's one group of people, but he gives them these three distinctions. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. All three of these people, he says to want, be, be, beware of. Why? He's talking about this group of false teachers that were called Judaizers. These, this group of people uh, believed Jesus was the Messiah. That's good. But they believe that if you want to come to know Jesus, you've got to become Jewish first. Now, and then, of course, after you become Jewish, you've got to keep all 613 uh, commands of the Old Testament law. And then you can come to know Jesus. So this is kind of a process that they've created, which has nothing to do with the Bible. But this is the process that they've, they've, uh, they've done. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> now, the question is, okay, well, let's just take. So what does it, become, what does it take to become Jewish? Well, the first step to become Jewish is circumcision. And uh, so now, as you can tell, this was a little more problematic for the guys um, because some guys were, you know, were like, hey, you know, I'm interested, you know, and other guys were saying, okay, and other guys weren't making the cut. Anyway, sorry about that. Sorry. Sorry. I'm not 100% today. Um, I can't be held responsible for anything I say, Uh, but... But here's the thing. So, but the problem was this. The problem is that they didn't really understand what the purpose of circumcision was. Now, circumcision makes its first appearance in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis 17, God tells Abraham, I want to make a covenant with you. Okay, great. If I was Abraham, I'd be very excited. The last time God made a covenant was in Genesis chapter 9 with Noah. Right? God floods the earth. After the flood, he says, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm going to set my bow in the clouds, the rainbow, that every time you see it, you'll know that I'm, I'm never going to destroy the earth in the same, with, with water as I have previously. So Abraham must be thinking, man, God's going to do something like that. Who knows what it's going to be? 
It's going to be like a flaming unicorn. I don't know why I brought unicorns into this, but some kind of this thing, like a lightning kind of thing. It's going to be awesome. And that's going to be my covenant with God. And then he's like, so, you know, you can imagine Abraham. Yes, Lord. I want to make a covenant with you. Yes, sounds great. It's going to be circumcision. God, I'm sorry. I don't think I heard you correctly. It sounded like you said circumcision. And uh, right. But here's the thing is that circumcision's intention, God's intention was that the ritual would be a picture of something much deeper, that there would be a cutting away of the flesh to symbolize living in the spirit. But what happened was, you see, that whole life in the spirit part is the part that got cut away. And, and the circumcision just became an empty ritual. And listen, let me tell you what can happen even in our context as Christians. Is that we can, there, there are things that we do, communion is one, that can just become an empty ritual if we're not careful. There, there are things like baptism. We're doing a baptism today and many of you are being baptized and I applaud you for that. But here's the thing, is that we can't let it, because if we go into the water and we just, oh yeah, just, it's not a big deal, I just got to do it. Listen, all you're going to get in that baptismal pool is wet. Because it's just a ritual without the spirit and the heart behind it. But see, when a person really understands what baptism is about, that when you go into the water, you're identifying with Jesus in his death and in his burial. And then when you, and according to Romans 6, when you come out of the water, you're identifying with Jesus in his resurrection. Now you realize that I'm leaving the old life behind when I go into the water, and I'm rising up in what Romans calls the newness of life. Now, the ritual or the symbol takes great meaning and has great depth because listen you can get baptized so many times that you know every fish in the sea by personal name but listen it doesn't going to matter if there isn't a heart behind the thing that you're doing because listen oh and here's the other thing because this was the thing oh you know it's circumcision that saves you that was the belief of the judaizers because that's what brings you into the community of israel in the same way Baptism is not what saves you. But here's the thing. When a person comes to know Jesus because Jesus died for them and they're forgiven because of Jesus' finished work on the cross, now a person who truly is saved, a person who truly has been forgiven by Jesus, wants to obey him. And the first order of business for someone who's come to know Jesus is baptism. And so they go into the water not looking for salvation. They go into the water understanding that they have been saved. And now this symbol has great meaning. You see, the Judaizers, Judaizers believed that simply the outward action alone meant something, when in reality, it was the depth of our faith that gave it value and validity. And that's why Paul calls them dogs. It's a strong term, but it was used, it was a term that they would use to insult Gentiles, that is, people who were not Jewish. Because in that day, the ancient Jews, they didn't have uh, dogs as pets. It's also the verse I use for my kids as to why they can't have a pet. The Bible says beware of dogs, kids. I'm sorry. Um, I don't want to violate the Bible. So, and, uh, so, but, but in that culture, um, dogs had not been domesticated uh, as pets. Instead, dogs were these wild scavengers that uh, fed primarily on garbage and roadkill. And so <clears throat> what happened was is that they looked on at these dogs that were eating just about anything and they compared them to Gentiles who didn't eat kosher. See, these people will eat anything. They're just like dogs. But then Paul turns that on its head and he says, you know what? You're the dogs. You're the evil workers. You are the mutilation, which is referring to obviously the act of circumcision. 
And what Paul is saying is, is that obeying the ritual isn't what causes you to know God. What causes you to know God is what he says in verse 3. Look at what he says. He says, for we are the circumcision. That is, we're the ones who have cut away the flesh so that we might live in the Spirit. And he goes on, who worship God in the Spirit. And so rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. That's really what knowing God is about. Worshiping God in the Spirit, rejoicing in Jesus, and not trusting in your flesh. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 4. He said this, But the hour is coming and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, true worship is about much more than going through the motions and saying the right words. It's about honoring God and living for Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. See, the person that thinks that the rituals are what please God just shows that they don't know God at all. You see, in in 1 Samuel, God would say this to the king at that time, Saul. He says this. He says, and it's in your notes. Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. You see, rituals have their place and have their purpose and have meaning, but they can never replace a relationship with God because the relationship is the undergirding that gives the acts meaning. Now, he goes on in verse 4, and look at what he says. Uh, In fact, I'll start in verse 3, just to start from the beginning of the sentence. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But those But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith. And if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing I want to talk to you about when it comes, that Paul says when it comes to uh, knowing God. We know God through our confidence in God's work, not in our own pedigree or rituals or accomplishments. Now, I want you to be warned. Paul's going to use some strong language here. And he begins by listing his pedigree, his accomplishments, which were quite impressive, by the way. He says, here's the deal. I was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with Jewish law. He lists his tribal ancestry as the tribe of Benjamin. In, um, <clears throat> when the kingdom of Israel split in two, after Solomon died, uh, his son Rehoboam took over. His son Rehoboam was, for as, as wise as Solomon was, was as foolish as Rehoboam was. And so the kingdom split in two. Remember, there were 12 tribes in Israel. The 10 tribes uh, left uh, and became the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom, the last two tribes, became the southern kingdom of Judah, which is all that was left of of the real um, kingdom. 
that, that David oversaw, that Solomon oversaw. And it was the tribe of Judah. And the only tribe that stuck with Judah was Benjamin. And he says, not only was I circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with Jewish law, but I mean, we were the most loyal. I'm part of the most loyal of all the tribes. He also says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, what does that mean? Now, let me give you a, uh, if I can give you a 30-second history lesson. Um, uh, Alexander the Great, if I can go back that far. All right, Alexander the Great, when he rose to power, his goal was to spread Greek culture throughout the entire world. And at the time of his death, he had essentially done that because most of the known world at that time was speaking Greek, including in Israel. And so it wasn't just um, the Greek language, but it was also Greek culture, Greek philosophy. And so many Jews at that time were Jewish by birth, Jewish by ritual through circumcision. But really, when it came to the way that they lived, they were living as Greeks. Uh, they were living in, in the culture, essentially, that Alexander the Great had created. Even though the Grecian Empire was gone, the Roman Empire had took over. But the Greek culture and philosophy was the primary culture in that day. Paul did not buy into that culture. When he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, it meant that he was, not, he was fluent in Hebrew, which most people weren't in that day. It also meant that not only was he fluent in Hebrew, but he was also, he had not bought into the culture. He had stayed within Hebrew culture. He still dressed as a Hebrew, spoke as a Hebrew, lived as a Hebrew. But then he says this, as he keeps inching his way towards like, oh, well, you know, I was circumcised the eighth day too. And oh, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin too. And he, then he says, well, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew. Oh, okay, well, all right, that's setting him apart a bit. But he says, when it came to the law, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the ultra conservative religious sect in Judaism. There were several, if we might call them, denominations within Judaism at this time. Now, even today, they still exist. But <coughs> the, the Pharisees were the most, the, the ultra, they were the, like today, the, would you look at the Orthodox uh, segment, you know, of, of Judaism. They were the ultra-Orthodox. They were the ultra-conservative. Pharisees in that day and age were so devout. If a Pharisee got a mosquito bite on the Sabbath, they wouldn't scratch it because that would be considered work. And so they had to honor the Sabbath. A Pharisee wouldn't take a bath on the Sabbath because if some of the water fell out of the bathtub and onto the floor, that would be considered work because they were cleaning the floor. So they wouldn't take a bath on the Sabbath. I know some teenagers that are living by that, that rule. Um, <clears throat> you know, this is the group, right? That this is, this is the, if, if the Pharisees were around today, this is the, the ultra group. This is the group that says, you know, we would never celebrate Halloween. Halloween means, celebrating Halloween means you worship the devil. And so we don't worship Satan. And uh, so we don't, we don't do that. By the way, can I just tell you something? Celebrating Halloween doesn't mean you worship Satan any more than celebrating Christi Christmas means that you're a Christian. Um, and and I, I tell you that because sometimes people get, um, get freaked out by that, you know, especially if you're of a more, more conservative uh, background. You know, we let our kids go out. We, and we, I, I went with my kids. My kids always ask me if I'm going to dress up. I tell them the same thing every year. You gonna dress up this year? Yes. Who are you going as? Darth Vader. Um, just haven't gotten around to buying the suit, but it's gonna happen. Um, but my kids see the thing is, my kids dress up every day. Every day when I get home from the office, my kids are dressed up in some costume, creating some fanciful world that in which there's heroes and villains, and they're one of them. Um, somehow my son is the the hero. My daughter Mia is the princess. My daughter Olivia is the villain, 
she doesn't really know, but that's Xander's like, she's, she's the bad guy. I'm like, listen, I'll be the bad guy. Anyway, so, um, but that's the whole thing. And so anyway, so we, we let the kids go out and get candy because my thing is this. I tell Carrie this. I'm like, listen, our kids dress up every day. To not let them go out the one day they're actually going to get paid to be, um, you know, to, to be dressed up just seems like cruel and unusual punishment. Um, so we go out, and then I have to explain to my kids why our neighbors are dressed like prostitutes. Um, she's always, no, I'm a nurse. Sure. She was a hooker. Um, and, uh, yeah, some of my neighbors don't like me. Um, but moving on. Um, <clears throat> but he was part of this ultra-conservative group, right? Ultra-conservative. I mean, we would never do anything like that. Never, never, never. And yet Paul looks at all of his accomplishments, and he says that he considers all of it rubbish. Now, let me just tell you something. Uh, the English translators who translated this from Greek to English so we could all read it uh, were being very, very kind when they translated that word rubbish. Uh, translated it to rubbish. The Greek word that is translated rubbish is the Greek word skubalon. Uh, skubalon is a word that literally means, um, uh, well, 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 we'll call it excrement, okay? That's what skubalon means. And so let me translate this passage, if I can, all right, into our language where Paul lists his pedigree. He says, hey, do you see my PhD from Harvard? You see my Pulitzer Prize? You see my Congressional Medal of Honor? You see my Nobel Peace Prize? It's all a pile of crap. That's what he says. This is probably a little stronger word, but, you know, we're amongst friends here, so we're not going to say it. Um, that's how strong Skubalon is. It, it's, it's a word that takes us back, like, whoa, Paul, why are you, why are you talking so strong to us? He's using the strong language, listen, because sometimes all of these accomplishments can actually become a hindrance to us knowing God. Because somehow we think that the accomplishments are a sign that we do know Him. Let me explain what I I mean. Um, We take our kids to swimming lessons because we live in Florida and we want them to live. And, uh, And so... But after the second lesson, Mia, from the first day, has loved going to swimming, swimming class. Loves it. She's actually already progressed like two levels. Xander, after the second lesson, didn't want to go anymore. And I said, well, why don't you want to go anymore? He says, Dad, I already know how to swim. Really? Because I've, I've been there for both classes and it didn't look like it. And, uh, and, and he said, no, I, I know. I know how to swim. I don't want to go. And I said, you don't. I said, we have a pool. I said, let's go out to the pool. You show me. You show me, you swim a lap, and you don't have to ever go back. You want to do it? Yes. Okay. Put on the, put on the trunks, and uh, we walk outside. And then as he wa- he's walking towards the pool, he makes this right-hand turn towards these little baskets that we have so we can grab some of his, you know, gear, his floaties and whatnot. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I think you may have misunderstood. There's no floaties. Yeah, but, Dad, I can't swim without floaties. I'm like, then you can't swim. Because if you're going to swim, you've got to swim without floaties. And so, and so we're, do, we're having this whole conversation. There, no one who knows how to swim needs floaties. So hop in. Dad, I can't swim without floaties. Then that means you can't swim. All right, Dad, let's go to class. You know, <clears throat> and that's how, that's how it goes down. But let me tell you how it works. Sometimes we do the same thing. We've got all these floaties that we're actually trusting in. We've got all these things that we think are actually the things that are keeping us afloat. And these are the things, and once again, they're not actual floaties, but they're our degree. They're our, our position. They're, you know, it's the bank account. It's the position. It's, it's all the stuff. It's the career. It's all these things. And th- these are the things that we're actually trusting in. Now, of course, we don't say that. 
We say that we trust God. And we're praying that God won't actually make us live that. You know, I mean, oh, I trust God over everything. Just please don't make me actually have to live by that statement because I really like the other stuff. And it's, listen, it's not that having wealth is bad. It's not that having a good position is bad. It's not that being educated is bad. None of those things are bad. And they're actually all very good things. But when you actually put your trust in those things and not your trust in the living God, here's what Paul would say. That degree, that position, that account, all of that, it's all a pile of crap. It's scubalon, it's floaties, it's none of, listen, none of it is actually going to help you the day that you really need it. And that's why, that's what Paul, he's telling us, listen, when we have our confidence in God's work, that's when we really know him. And that's, listen, and sometimes it takes taking off the floaties to say, you know what, I trust him. And sometimes it's when you got nothing else is when you realize that you can actually float without those things. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Here's the the third thing, is that we know God through our experience with God. Through our experience with him. You see, I love what he says. He says, I want to know him. But he, but he shows us two ways that we know him. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Listen, there are moments when you, when you walk with God that you experience the power of his resurrection in your life. There are moments when everything is going right and you're on top of the world. You're in the zone. Nothing can go wrong. Everything in your life is in harmony. Or maybe you're going through a difficult season and God shows up in a way that it can only be him. And you say, and you're just sitting back and you're like, man, God is just doing a work in my life and it's beyond anything I could have ever hoped for. But that's not the only way that we know him. That's one way and it's an important way and it's an amazing way. It's an exciting way. But there's another way that we know him. There's a way that we know him when he says it's the power of his resurrection. And then he says this, that I may know him in the fellowship of his suffering. Listen, the people that you're closest to aren't just the people who have been to the parties with you. Not just the people who have been at the mountaintop experiences with you. But they are the people who have walked with you in the deepest, darkest, most painful moments of your life and still love you. These are people who have seen you at your worst and still care for you. That's why the Bible would say this in Proverbs 18, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. My friends, this is what Paul learned. This is what we need to learn, is that Jesus is the one who walks in when everybody else walks out. Jesus is the one who stays when everybody else leaves. Jesus is the one who believes when everybody else thinks you're crazy. Jesus is the one who tells you the truth when everyone else doesn't love you enough to confront you. Jesus is the one who has the power to change your life when everybody else can only offer up commentary on your situation. And that's why Paul says, here's the deal. I want to know him. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know him and the fellowship of his suffering because it's in those two ways that I actually know him. Let me tell you something. <clears throat> it was uh, three years ago. Some of you know this. Some of you have been around for a while. It was almost three. It was, 
uh, three years ago that my daughter Mia almost died. Um, and I, I, I won't take the whole time to tell you the story, but I remember. I remember so vividly sitting in that chair in the hospital room. And um, the doctor just told us that all we can do is just make her comfortable. That's it. And just wait and see. I've never felt more helpless in my whole life. And I remember, man, I cried like I've never cried before. And I prayed like I've never prayed before. And man, I called out to God like I've never called out to him in my entire life. And I can stand before you today to say that my daughter is totally healed and totally whole. Everything, she, she is um, turning seven. She's, um, she's so important to us. I, I lay her down at night, you know, when she goes to sleep and I... I give her a kiss and a hug, and I tell her, I say, Mia, you're, 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 so, you're so special to us. I say, your brother and your sister, we love them so much, but you were our first. You were the answer to our prayer. Ten years we waited for you. And when God blessed us, he blessed us with you. But I want to tell you something, is that we, I, I, I met God in that chair like I've never known him before. Listen, I learned and I experienced God in that chair when I was sitting in that hospital room like I've never experienced him before. And I want to tell you something. Listen, I never want to go back there. I never want to experience that again. But I can look back and tell you that I wouldn't know God as I know him today had I not experienced what the psalmist said in Psalm 23 that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Because when Paul says he wants to know him, it's not just the mountaintop experience of I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He says, I want also want to know him and have fellowship in his sufferings. Because when we're suffering, he's with us. He said he'd never leave us. He would never forsake us. That's the promise that we have. And my friends, if we will walk through those difficult seasons, we will know him in a way that we've never known him. Let's pray together. And Lord, I want to thank you. I thank you for for loving us. That God, you allow us to know you. And Lord, I just want to pray for every person in this room who can hear my voice that is going through a dark season, is going through a challenging time that God, may this be the time that they come to know you and experience you. And God, may may their relationship with you deepen in, in this experience. And may they never be the same because of it, because they know you even more. God, some of us, we need to come back to you. And maybe it's the dark, the difficult time that we're in that's leading us back to you right now so God help us not to waste the moment help us not to waste any hurt in our life because you promised us that you're working all things together for good we pray it in Jesus name amen listen um, some of you are, are here today and here and here's the deal is that you're going through a tough time and man I get it I've been there but I want you to know something is that these things have not happened at random. 
Instead, God is carefully orchestrating something in your life. And then, because what God wants to do is, listen, He wants to deepen your relationship with Him. If you're a Christian, listen, He wants you to really know Him. And we don't really know Him just having the mountaintop experiences. But instead, it's sometimes when we're walking in the valley that we find Him. For some of us, some of us, we'd say, you know, I, I don't really know God. I'm, I'm not, that's not my, it's not my thing. Some of us, maybe you, you have, but you've walked away. And now a difficult season has come in, and that's the thing that's drawn you back. That's why you're here today. And I want to tell you that, listen, this is going according to God's plan. Because God loves you too much to let you walk away. And he knows what's going to get our attention. And he knows what it is that's going to draw us back. He knows what it is that's going to lead us back to him. That's going to cause us to really know him in a way that we've never known him. So I'm going to invite everyone to stand, if you would, in these closing moments. And here's what I want to do as we close. I just want to give you an opportunity to come back. The band is going to play in a moment, and I'm going to invite you to come forward and just meet me here, the base of this platform. And we're going to pray together and call out to God, and here's what we're going to find, is that when you take a step in God's direction, the Bible says this, if you draw near to God, then He'll draw near to you. That God is already here waiting for you to take a step in His direction, and that He wants to work in your life. That what the Bible says is actually true, that God is working all things together for good to those who love Him and to those who are the called according to His purpose. And so if you're going through a difficult season, listen, now is your moment to say, I don't want to waste it. I'm not going to waste my pain. I'm not going to waste my hurt, but I'm going to allow it to do the work that God wants to do to deepen my relationship with Him, to begin my relationship with Him, to renew my relationship with Him. So listen, now is the time to say I'm ready. I'm ready to begin again. I'm ready to start over. I'm ready for God to begin the work. I want to know Him. I want to come back to Him. I want to experience Him. Today is your day. The band is going to play. I'm going to invite you to come forward and meet me here in this place. Mark, lead us.